Hi everybody, welcome to the Colour Tour podcast and this week I'm chatting to Irishman Dave Hughes coming all the way from the fantastic city of Dublin. Now I thought about doing an accent but I won't. Before we start, talking to Dave and just thank all our sponsors in no particular order. Portrait Displays, SGO, Dell Monitors, FSI, Dolby Vision, Zeus, BMD, Filmworks, FX PhD, Soho Net, Able Cine, and X Right. Thanks to them, they make things happen for us. Our podcasts, our Space Cadets, the mixers, just generally running the website. So let's go to the pod. Enjoy, folks. Ready to have some fun? If you look inside it, you can see every possible color. Dave, welcome to the Color Tour podcast. How are you? How's it going? Good, 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 good. Trying to get this podcast with you has not been easy because you were busy, then I was busy, and then back, back, back. So about a month, here we are. So welcome. It's great to finally get you on the show. So what have you been, what have you been working on then? You've been so busy there. bit of everything. Uh, commercials, uh, drama series, documentary series, and a feature film. Um, it's, uh, we do a bit of everything here. So it's... Uh, it's not. It's quite good. Uh, just to, for diversity and everything else. Um, last couple of weeks, I've been on a on a series for uh, sorry, a, a musical show for PBS in the States, um, which has kept me quite busy. And before that, I was on a documentary series. So uh, I've been a bit. I've been up against it just for deliveries and everything else. Uh, cool. And so I've been able to get hold of you. <laughs> Brilliant. Now, for everyone out there, you work at Windmill Lane and you are in Dublin. Now, the Colour Tour never never uses any cliches or anything, but I do have a drink tonight, and of course it's a Guinness. No, I've never, I've never stooped to such corniness, so I have a, a good Australian beer that I'm going to drink. Cheers. Cheers. So talking to Dublin, now I was in Dublin early 1990 for a, a sort of a boozy weekend and it was a really fun place. But what's it like to work there? Is there much competition? Is it a vibe? Is there, is it is there a lot going on? Um, yeah, there's, uh, there's four main post houses here um, and we're one of them. But uh, there's... Uh, a few around they're all based within sort of the local area so uh it's almost like a mini sort of soho in that sense um they we're in the georgian quarter so uh, there's lots of old georgian buildings here um and we're in a purpose-built building um which we moved into 11 years ago we were originally in the windmill lane studios uh, down in windmill lane on the keys where uh, uh the recording studios are and everything else um so uh we moved up here and it's uh it's lovely building actually to work in um everything is connected and we have uh color or uh, avid audio online vfx uh, everything all in-house there's a fabulous little history there's a video and a bit of a timeline of where windmill lane came from and where they started with dates of what buildings and what kit they bought and it was really good it was a really good reminder for me to go in and realize hey oh yeah i remember those times that you know and also how long ago these things were 
Dave. Yeah. I mean, where have yeah. the years gone? Well, I think Windmill originally started in the 70s. Um, yeah. As a recording studio. Um, and then the sort of production side and the post-production side came out of that from uh, music videos. Um, so it's it's been around a while. And uh, then we have, there's a number of other ones that popped up over the years, uh, Screen Scene, Egg and Outer Limits. Um, but uh, the, I suppose the staff in everywhere, we've all worked in each other's facilities at some stage or another. So it's um, it's quite good. Um, but it's, yeah, Dublin, it's, uh, the scene here is, it's quite small. Uh, it is centralized, but we do, we do see each other quite a bit in, in terms of like literally going for a sandwich at lunchtime, you'll bump into somebody um, or going to the pub when the pubs are open. Um, <laughs> which is a, a bit of a thing still. Uh, they're not. A, you can get food in a pub, but you can't go drinking in a pub. Um, so, uh, but that's all changing next week. Hopefully. Good. Um, so it's been two years dry, uh, maybe. That's hard. It's hard for a lot of companies, isn't it? And hard yeah. for obviously lot for any any big city that's relying on tourism and things as well. Uh, I know we said it last year, but let's hope next year is better than this year. Yeah, uh, definitely. It's, uh, it's, I, I do like the quietness stuff. It's, yeah. Uh, that, yeah, I, can, I, I cycle everywhere. So it's, uh, it's been lovely cycling on empty roads. Brilliant, yeah. brilliant. And talking of the, the lockdown, did it affect you? Did you have to go and work from home with a remote system? How did it work out? Um, we, uh, we have two base lights here and a conform and a base light on a Mac which we use to log into the systems. Um, generally, uh, we would do commercial work online uh, at home, uh, purely because the bandwidth uh, and the sort of speeds, you're dealing with small amounts of data, but for long form, we've been in uh, full time. Um, like we've done, well, must be six or seven drama series, um, 10 or 12 features and a rate of documentaries and commercials over lockdown. So I've been in full time pretty much um, over the entire course, uh, along with five others out of a company of 60, um, which has been, it's been quite nice. Um, and the way the building is set up, we have our own, we're in our own sort of corridor and we have our own machine room and grading is completely contained in one area um, so uh, in terms of isolation and bubbles we were all the company is set up in a way that we're all set up like that anyway um, so it wasn't really that different uh, just not having people sitting on the sofa that was yeah. The, the only yeah talking about windmill why why base light was that something you were involved with at the beginning and yeah. how how why did you guys make that choice we made the choice back in late 2005 um just because we saw the way the world was going and at the time we were doing uh film outs through the mill in london um and the sort of the world of di was taking off and we decided to embrace it um the windmill had it didn't have as much uh, long form work as it does now um, and we wanted to get into that sort of market at the time so we went to london we checked out 
all the systems, Nicoda, Luster, and Da Vinci didn't have um, the resolve at the time um, when we were looking. So it was Nicoda, Luster 7. Um, we looked at them all and we have a connection with the mill in London in the sense that windmill, the, the guys who set up windmills set up the mill. So uh, I spent a bit of time talking to Mick Vincent, who was getting into the DI world very, very early on. And um, because we did a lot of work through the mill, we sort of, we, we looked at everything and we thought we might as well go with Baselight because it means that we can transfer if I have to go to London to finish something or we had cross-pollination across both companies. Um, now the companies are completely separate now because the mill's been bought and sold 101 times. Um, but uh, it was great at the time to go over there and sort of be able to sort of just bring bring a job and transfer. Yeah, I said to you before, Mira, pre-chat, you want to be comfortable with what you're using, aren't you? You know, you're in there 10 hours a day sitting in front of a monitor grading or you, you want to go into work, happy you are, the better pictures you're going to make. And if certain software, then that's fine. I'm The only one can use anything. It's doesn't, it, it doesn't really matter. You go for what you like using. Yeah, it does. Um, like, I, I, I won't sort of put one above the other because it is, it's purely down to usability. Um, like back in the day when there was Pogos and Da Vinci's, um, yeah. it was this, a similar thing. Um, now I know Europe was a little bit more Pogo based and the US was uh, more Da Vinci based, but that was just what everyone was comfortable with. They, they all do the same thing. It's just in different ways. And yeah, it's, it's just become sort of the, the way of working that makes it comfortable now. Do you feel from a client perception, the the film light logo, the blackboard panel, the, the base light gives you, a, they think like they're in a difference, it gives you an edge or something? Um, it does in the sense that we're the only base light house in town. Um, everyone else uses Da Vinci at the moment. Um, now, we, we find, particularly with international clients, um, uh, that they come in, they see the they see the base light, and they go, "Oh, great, we're on a base light." Um, but then we also have clients that come in with the, the resolve on the Mac and go, "Can I export my project to you?" And you're going, uh, "Sorry, it's uh, it's a base light, not a Da Vinci." I normally get scared, Dave, when the director says, "Can I share my project?" I don't mind the editor sharing the timeline, but when someone wants to give you the grades, and yeah, you've got no. to be polite about them, even if you're thinking, "Oh." I normally say, yeah, well, the still frame's a great reference. We could probably rebuild it a different way, politely. You have to be tactful. Um, <laughs> it's uh, generally when people bring in uh, something they've done on their lap, it is on a still frame. And you kind of very gently have to introduce the fact that a moving image is very different from a still image uh, in the sense that you can make a frame look nice, but to make it work across a, a moving image with variable lighting it's yeah it's a different beast uh, altogether mate, um, it's a challenge we get when a still's been worked in photoshop or somewhere and it looks great as a still doesn't it and they say yeah. this is the sort of thing we want but it's been worked pretty hard and it is only a still it's tricky it's the, the whole digital world has become very tricky in that sense that 
everybody can make something look good, but it's getting it to work is where it gets difficult. Do you in Baselight have like a set presets for certain cameras with looks in that you will throw up at a beginning of a job, especially with um, someone you haven't worked with before, or you're not, you don't work like that? No, generally, um, if there's a, if it's a drama series or, um, where they've used a, a lot on set, we'll generally import that um, as, a, as a base for them to start from because um, particularly nowadays, you find that um, where there's a drama series, the dailies have to look as good as the finished show uh, in the sense that uh, producers and the amount of people that are looking at it have to understand how it's going to be. So if there's a show lot, um, we will generally import that. Um, and the one thing that's great about the base light, um, which I used on uh, My Little Pony, was that the animators were using um, a viewing lot on their renders, um, which was purely a VFX uh, viewing lot. It had nothing to do with a grade. It, it just didn't work on the grading system. But uh, we were able to uh, send it to Filmlight, and they were able to convert it for us. So we had a, a, a viewing lot based on their viewing lot. So when they all came in, they weren't looking at very milky images going, what have you done to our beautiful renders? It was, um, we were able to say, okay, this is what you're, this is where you were working to. Um, so we have that built in and then we'll enhance that on top of where you're going from. Great. Um, but generally, uh, particularly with feature films, actually, we um, were quite lucky here that, uh, that the producers will always put in a play day. Um, so, before we start grading. So what happens is the DP comes in and we'll literally play for the day. Uh, we'll go through the movie, we'll see what works, what doesn't work. Um, the Any of the ideas that the DP had uh, when they were shooting, or we can apply them, see how they work in context. We always keep the references that we make yeah. from everything. Um, and we have a so look, this is what it looks like. It doesn't really work in the context that your A camera looks great with the sunshine in the background, but your B camera, and just it just won't work with the B camera. Um, it doesn't feel right for the what's there, um, and it gives DPs a lot of confidence as well in what you're doing because um, once you've gone through all of that, uh, a lot of DPs will actually leave you alone for a few days just to get on yeah. with the job, and um, they're not worried about sitting on your shoulder. And you know yourself, it's a much more productive way to work where you just get into it and you're not um you're not you're, you're in the zone you just get into yeah. it and you can get on with it um, yeah yeah the, the, that's, that's when you get well, that's when you get there when they've gone when they're confident in you in yeah. you isn't it and they they well yeah this guy girl they know what they're doing they leave you alone that's a good time when you can do that and yeah it is um and and also, uh, we tend to do our own conforms um, from camera rushes. We don't work from proxies or uh, DTXs or anything else. We, we work directly from the camera rushes. So as we're conforming, we're able to have a look at everything and just see where we can go and um, just have a look at how the exposure, like, because you know what the exposures are. You can see from intent if somebody's 
way overexposed on something that's underlit just because they want the grainy effect or the you can you sort of have that understanding from the beginning rather than sitting down cold and going okay what is this um, yeah do you get involved in making a show lot like you say you do everything at windmill um, right? do you get involved in building that yourself if it's a drama series sometimes dp will come in having shot tests in locations and everywhere else and um particularly uh, something studio based you can be quite precise in what you're doing um or it um, if it's location based it it is weather dependent and because we get four seasons in a day over here um it can be quite tricky to create a show look for a, a purely an exterior because the beginning of a take will have sunshine and the end of the take will have hail and thunder um and uh, it's there's, there isn't really a lot you can make to deal with that. The producers are quite intent on sort of having a, a an almost graded offline cut. Um, they'll be tweaked as we go along. Whereas if they if they're confident in just a cut, and again it's experience. Uh, a lot of sort of older heads will they don't really care what their offlines look like because they understand that it's an offline. Um, but if you're dealing Particularly with the sort of the multinational sort of shows where you've got producer in the States, producer in Europe, uh, um, a producer say in London, and they all some one of them will have way more experience than another. It's it comes down to experience and um, what what they can visualize. So yeah. uh, it, it's yeah, it's a difficult it's a difficult sort of world uh, that sort of. My other question, are you working in ACES or base light, colour space? Most of we would work ACES um, just because it's a, it's a standard that works yeah. across the board. Um, and particularly, like every show has VFX these days, like, yeah. regardless of what's going on. And uh, whether we're dealing with our own VFX department or an external VFX department, they all They'll all take EXRs in a, an ACES color space. Um, and we'll always do a round the house trip. Every job, we'll always send them something, ask them to put something on us and send it back to us just to make sure. Yeah. Uh, because we're the guys in the room at the end of the day with the DP going, oh. what have you done to my beautiful picture? Oh, so important. And um, so we do a lot of that. Um, but ACES has, ACES has taken a lot of the issues out of that. Um, because it's having a standard across multi-platforms and multi-departments. It, it's, it's the first thing that sort of it balances out the effects um, and grading. Whereas before it used to be, you'd send them a log DTX file or, yeah. and, and they sort of, they could send back anything. Um, yeah. And whereas now it's, no, this is the way it is. Um, it's it's been I'm going to say it's probably been nearly ten years since we sort of first heard of ASUS right at the beginning, probably maybe yeah. eight years I'd say, but it seemed to have taken a while for the VFX departments to get it on board and go yeah we know this and we understand this, and obviously everyone's everybody's got to be on the same page, but it finally feels like now we're getting somewhere. We're all there yeah. now. It's HDRs thrown into the loop, which is challenging everyone again. Once we thought we'd got there, 
Well, we thought that with HD as well. We thought there'd be one flavor of HD. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It's the Asus has nullified like the. It's basically the capture formats. Uh, like if somebody's shooting Ari Raw, ProRes, Blackmagic, Red, uh, any of the digital cameras, it's it because it normalizes them all. It just takes all of that sort of uh, de-bearing out of the out of the equation. Um, yeah. Like some companies do something one way, some companies do it another way. But with Asus, it sort of locks everyone into one workflow, yeah. and it just makes everyone's life easier. So what? It, let's finish off on kit while we're in kit. What monitors have you got there? Is that standardised through the facility? Uh, no, it's not. We have uh, we have a Dolby and we have the new Sony HDR. The Dolby we've had since, or oh, we've had the Dolby eleven years, second one in Europe. Yeah. Um, and that's that, that was a game changer um, in terms of once the tubes died. Um, and everyone went LED or LCD or even plasma. Uh, once the Dolby came out, it sort of it brought us back to something that you could have confidence in, um, in terms of they have having the CR, CRT mode, the LED mode, and the plasma mode. You can stick between them depending on what you need, but we generally work CRT, um, and that would be mostly for SDR work. Uh, for HDR work or for animations, we use the Sony, the new, we, yeah. what, we got it about six months ago, um, which is which is a lovely monitor, but it has a very different feel, again, which is uh, something to get used to, sort of the, the OLEDs are, they just have that sort of bottom ends that you just don't get on anything else. Yeah. Um, like it's a long time since you're sort of lining up CRTs and grading suites and having a black and white reference as well. So, talking of black and white references and CRTs, how did it all begin for you, Dave? Whereabouts? How did you get into crazy world of colouring? Um, I started out in London in the early nineties. Uh, I was living in France and uh, I had an English girlfriend, and uh, she moved back to London, so I followed her back and. Uh, got a job in a post house as a runner, um, to pay the bills essentially, um, through a friend of ours. And uh, I just fell in love with it. Uh, it was one of those, it was a small post house called Soho 601, which was uh, based in Great Pulteney Street in Soho. Uh, in fact, Frame Store were in the same building upstairs um, at the time. And uh, we had one Telly Cine Street, which was a, an Ursa Gold with uh, a Pogel at the time um, and a few online suites. Um, we eventually got Henry's in Flames, but it was we were back in the days of taking film and that was it. Um, and I started out as the runner there and uh, on the night shift, we were owned by a lab, uh, Soho Images, which is based in Soho as well. And they used to use our telecine for dailies and the uh, dailies colors used to come over and I used to sit in with them. And just from there, uh, I started doing sort of dailies and when I became tape up, I still stayed doing dailies and sort of tape upping at the same time. And then into music videos um, and it was, it was all nighttime work. It was just hours and hours of working into sort of like four or five o'clock in the morning, getting the first tube home and following, sort of <laughs> waiting for a bus or 
getting a breakfast somewhere on Brewer Street and waiting for some way to get home. It's so similar to me, very similar time zone and similar sort of route up as well. It's funny, isn't it? So who were the who were the graders that were there then at those days that you were sort of learning from? Who was it there? Uh, the first guys that were there were uh, Nigel Shaw, yep. uh, wing commander, yeah. and uh, Adrian Hauser, uh, who's based in Australia now. Yeah, yeah, Adrian. He's in, he's down in Sydney. I'm trying to get him on the colour tour, but at the <laughs> moment Sydney are locked down, so I can't I can't even drive down and talk to him. And I, I feel I cannot do a like a Zoom uh, podcast with somebody in the same country, even though he's only he's he's still a ten hour drive away. So hopefully Adrian will come on because he's he's a great guy and he will be uh, a good listener as well. And uh, yeah, so we're talking mid. 90s are we or is it before then yeah, 90, 94 95 okay, yeah. Um, yeah. there were some good music videos and there were lots back then wasn't there they were good oh. budgets and you could just a great way to just learn and create and looks and experiment and just brilliant you do anything. that was the great thing like anything was possible generally they rock up with two cans of 16 mil and you'd sort of you go have a look at it. Um, and there was a guy actually, Marcus Timpson, he's based in Australia now as well. Yeah. He, uh, he was ahead of me and he was doing a lot of great music videos. Um, and uh, I could watch him work. Uh, it was, you just watch what they were doing. And, and then once I got into the room, you, you learned more about managing clients, I think, doing promos than you did in any other discipline. Um, in the sense that they'd rock up, anything was possible. They were generally there for a good time. And uh, I've probably done five or 600 music videos of which maybe 50 have seen the light of day. It was was great fun. Um, But then those uh, clients uh, advanced onto uh, commercials. That was seemed to be the logical progression. They started out doing cheaper ads and you'd sort of move up with them and uh that sort of then went on and on companies like spidercom and yeah uh uh Hobby and stink uh there was, there was a lot of companies that just sort of everybody generations at the same time as as we were there um so a lot of like you would have been in the same time as me so like uh this was uh it was Aidan Farrell as well at Molinaire at the time. Yeah. And, uh, like all, we were all, I think we all, there's a whole generation sort of came up around the same time um, through the same path. And it was, uh, it was just a great time um, to be in London and everything else. No, oh, it, it was fantastic. Yeah. Why would you want to work anywhere else? Yeah, no, it's uh, like I left London in 2000 when sort of it, everybody started being bought out by the bigger companies um, and uh, it changed, it did change. Like, I don't think that world would ever exist again, particularly with HR departments as well. Um, I don't think um, like the the working hours, the sort of, and everything that went with it. uh, Like we were probably working 12, 14 hours a day minimum. um, And you were doing anything. Like if you got your hands on a roll of film, and a telecine machine, you just wanted to do it. There was no, yeah. 
we just didn't care what you were doing as long as you were doing it. Um, and it was brilliant. Um, like, I, I love that. Um, and to be honest, I'm still a bit like that because I'll, I'll do dailies with somebody if they want. Yeah. Or, um, like, I, I, I just want, I just want to make pictures. Uh, I just love, <laughs> love, love doing that. Um, now it's got way more complicated, but it's it's still yeah. essentially um, quite it's still essentially the same thing. So where did you uh, go in two thousand? Uh, I went to screen scene here in Dublin for a year, and uh, I left there after a year. And I went to work for Condor in Belgium. Okay, yeah, I've heard of that name. Yeah, they had a place in London as well, didn't they? They had a place in London, Berlin, and Amsterdam. Yeah, that's right. And uh, I essentially I started out there doing a day a week in each place. Um, being based in Brussels, it was a, an hour and a half on the train, pretty much anywhere. Um, and it was great. I loved working over there. The quality of work was amazing. Um, yeah. It was, uh, and they were a great company to work for. Uh, they so they looked after everyone. They they were a real throwback in the sense that they were a work hard, play hard type of company. Um, but the quality of work was amazing on the continent. Every country was different, so you had different styles in different countries on a daily basis. So, so was it like Monday I'm in Brussels and Tuesday I'm in London and Wednesday I'm in Amsterdam, or did it just depend uh, on what, was, where they wanted you on that particular week? Uh, no, it was there was weeks where I was in a different country every day, um, <laughs> but going home to Brussels during the week and then flying back to Dublin on the weekend. <laughs> um, it was uh, it was a, it was a really it was a great way it was a great way to learn um, in the sense that each each company each country had its own style had its wow. own sort of um, like the Germans really liked bright colours the Dutch really liked that sort of Scandinavian type look the Belgians would take a bit of everything because half the country is French and half the country is Dutch. So the, the French half would want everything to look like Amelie and uh, the Dutch half would ever want everything to look like the killing. Um, it, was, uh, it, was quite, it, it was quite an experience, but I was there for two and a bit years. And then, um, and then Windmill phoned me because uh, I freelanced here um, after I left screen scene on King Arthur. Uh, it was a, a film that was Jerry Bruckheimer was producing, but he was based, he based it all in Dublin. So um, I stayed here and did a bit of freelance work for that. And then I did another one, Veronica Gear and with Joel Schumacher. And um, that was based uh, in Dublin as well. So I, I freelanced for a bit, sort of moving around back in London for a, a day or two here, there, in Paris, a day or two here and there, it, depending wherever the work was. Um, and because when I worked in London, I demoed Millennium Telecine Machine for ITK and the white ones before that. And okay. I, you got to meet everyone, as you know, from the trade shows. So yeah. I knew people from every country in Europe and they were like, so when I went freelance, um, I just sent off a, a mail and a, and a letter actually. Some places they didn't have emails at the time. Um, <laughs> and uh, so I picked up quite a bit of work for it was about nine months I was freelancing, but it was it was very busy. And um, and then Condor obviously came and got me, and uh, was there for a while. And then Windmill uh, phoned me 
um, because I'd freelance for him. And there's a, Tim Waller was the guy actually who was here at yes. the time. Um, and uh, I'd worked with Tim a bit in London and uh, he was leaving, he was going back to London and uh, he sort of said, well, get Dave back, he's a local boy. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I came back and been here ever since. Yeah, and I know Tim from Australia as well. So it's a yeah. real little cross close community every because everyone and uh, everyone sort of knows everyone one way or the other, don't they? They do, and also it's but the colorist community is it's like it's a very it's still a small community considering how much it's expanded in the last ten years. Uh, like there's probably ten times the amount of colorists that there used to be, but everybody still knows everybody and there's a lot of community and people people aren't jealous of each other they they sort of like if somebody does a good yeah. job they'll tell them they've done a good job it, there's no um there isn't a rivalry in the sense that it's um you don't feel like you're competing against other colorists all the time uh whereas i think other sort of disciplines that can happen where uh, people tend to be quite sort of protective of their own of the world, whereas colors generally tend to be very friendly to and, and helpful. Like it's like I know there's probably 20 guys I can phone if I have an issue with something or I don't understand. Like colors are very unafraid to say, I don't know. Um, I, I can find out, but I don't know, uh, which is probably one of the most important things you can admit to yourself in this job. Yeah. Um, and everybody will help you. It's um, like if somebody has a, even if it's something that you think they should know, or they, they can still sort of take the time, sit down, do it, particularly with Zoom now and everything else. It's sort of, you can go through stuff and go, um, and sometimes like where, uh, like some people call midtone scammer, some people, like there, there is that language that sort of, um, Particularly with the sort of the world now, you can literally get the camera on your desk and go press this button, and they go, "Okay, yeah, now I get it," and you yeah. end up speaking there's language very quickly. Yeah. Um, yeah, and and being helpful like this, like, I don't know a colorist that isn't helpful. No, uh, it's a great great community, and still is when we have mixers around yeah. the world, and we do them online as well. There's always a great camaraderie. That's a slight throwback to the old sort of telecine party days when uh, everyone got on so well back then and like um, uh, you you actually were demoing a, an ITK machine that my boss bought that then gave me a first job in Australia yeah and I was demoing yeah. for the competition which was Sintel but everyone was sort of friends together anyway so it was it yeah, was but great but even from those days uh, I still stay in touch quite a bit with Seamus um, yeah uh, and he went to the mill, um, which has the link obviously with us. And so we we thought because he went from Pogo, like he was quite late going to the base light. And so uh, if he couldn't get hold of Mick or one of the other guys, like you get a phone call. Um, oh, just quickly out. And it's, yeah, that's how you do it. It's, he held on to that Pogo for a long time, didn't he? He did. <laughs> he did. But he's glad he made it sing. <laughs> he did. He did. Those guys, uh, like they were rock stars for twenty years, but they still take the time of day with somebody who basically was in the job a week, and they still take the time of day to sit down, go through stuff with them, and 
and because we all work in slightly different ways, like it's um, like every colorist works in a slightly different way to every other colorist. There's no sort of set rule, and and colorists won't say to each other, "Oh, you should do it this way, or you should do it that way." It's like what works for you and how it works for you is what makes your makes you comfortable mm. operating in the, in the in the room. Yeah, brilliant. So let's let's talk about a couple of your jobs. Looking through your reel again on the Wimbledon website, there's a Guinness sort of Titanic ad that sort of caught my eye, and because it had a conventional type look, but then it had two black and white looks in it, and it was yeah. an interesting, funny ad and a bit of a throwback. Uh, do you even remember that ad, Dave? When was that? <laughs> oh, that was a long time ago. Um... I don't remember an awful lot about it, apart from that it was shot in colour. 35 mil? Uh, 35 mil, yeah. Um, it was uh, it was shot in colour because we tested black and white stock and it was too contrasty at the time. Um, it just didn't have that sort of lower mid-range that they, they were looking for um, at the particular time. Uh, so the shot in colour um, just so that we could manipulate it a little bit more. People always think film was quite simple, but film was actually just as difficult when you, if you were trying to find a particular style or a particular look and rain pattern and everything else. Um, it just, the, the post side of it just seemed to be simpler, but it was the shooting side was much more complicated in the sense that once it was on film, it was, that's what it was. And there was no, you weren't able to go in and sort of change an ISO or sort of, um, Color, color temperatures or anything else, right. it was, it was no. set in stone. Um, which made, made grading, um, you really have to understand your film stocks actually when you think about it um, and like what they would do and how they behave certain things. Um, I always found that having been part of that Soho 601 Soho Images group, it was great because we had the lab and we spent time with the labs. Like we used to put on the night vision glasses and go down and watch them developing the stuff. Yeah. Uh, and you kind of, you got to understand how film works um, yeah. and how it reacted in different ways because essentially we were just firing a light through a, a roll of negative um, back in the day. And it would always, like depending on the film stuff that was used, it, was, it would always react in a different way. Um, even yeah. the same stuff on a different day in the back could change all of that. We've mentioned some names from the past here, but one legend, Jim Hogan. And that's one of the yeah. things he said to me when I was coming up. He said, you, most important thing, get to know your film stocks and get to know yeah. your lab techniques and just study that and just practice matching those stocks and get to know all those characteristics. But the same is true today with all these different cameras, isn't it, really? The more we understand them, and I say to these the kids when I'm doing these training classes, just get to understand all of these different formats, codecs, what they're like, the problems you get with them. And you never stop learning because there was a new camera coming out, isn't there? And you've got to investigate a little bit about it and how it's going to react and what you like and what you don't like about it. So you do have to understand that in the same way that you have to understand what's there uh, nowadays. Uh, because if you don't, like people think, um, particularly youngsters when they come through, like you really have to sort of go, this is the way it is. It's every format is, is different. Every 
sort of lens is going to be different. Every codec is going to be different. And um, here with our assistants, they start doing dailies in the same way that we did. Um, like there's no difference between doing dailies on digital formats nowadays as there was doing dailies on film back in the day when we studied film and a lot of film. You still do the same thing. You still learn the same way. You still have to understand what's coming into you. Um, and uh, you still have to essentially fill out an egg report. That yeah. Yeah. Done. yeah. Yeah. Um, There's the thing. Neg report. Camera shaped. God, don't we wish yeah. we still had those, Dave? But I used to swear by camera sheets. If I didn't have camera sheets, they tell you they told you everything. They told you yeah. what the stock was, they told you what the lens was, they told you like they told you everything. And, and it was but I can't remember the last time I saw a camera sheet. No, uh, no, it's one of my bugbears. I'm sounding like a right old fart whinging because you don't get but sometimes you just guess too much, don't you? You spend yeah. time going, what was this and that? It's just good to have backup. Yeah. Well, yeah, but also it's, yeah. Um, it also lets you know what's going on because a lot of uh, people would say they've shot something and you're looking at the metadata on a file and you're going, that's not what you shot. <laughs> yeah. The camera was set up. Whereas, uh, and if they had it on a camera sheet, they could say, well, this is how we said it. They could remember, but a lot of people don't remember now from what they're shooting because everything is just all oh, fixed switch there looks good on my monitor great yeah. um but if your monitor yeah. isn't locked up and you're shooting through that that's yeah. a world of pain for you yeah let's bring it up today you mentioned my little pony that was a movie for netflix i believe but all animation yeah. is that correct it's all CG animation, yeah. It's uh, made by an Irish company here, uh, Boulder Media. It's their first feature-length animation. They do a lot of uh, kids' uh, programs, um, like Transformers and things like that. But I, I have a 13-year-old now, so it's, I'm not watching them anymore, thank God. But they started this four years ago. And we got involved at the very beginning because we do a lot of their audio work here. Um, and because the industry is quite small here in Ireland, uh, guys who were doing the pumping on the show itself, once the animation was finally rendered, were guys that I used to work with here. So I was, uh, we had relationships, so I was easy to phone them, sort of see how they were getting on. And it, it just worked very well as a collaborative um, project. Uh, and I'd never braided a feature length animation before. Uh, I, it was a totally new beast for me in the sense that creating animation, there's there's so many things you have to take into account um, that you don't have to take into account with live action because live action is much more organic in the sense that your color palette can be whatever you want it to be. Whereas with animation, the colors are set out from the yeah. onset uh, with the characters. Yeah. So um, that came to us. Six months ago, uh, it started coming in and as the renders were happening. Um, and uh, we conformed it. Uh, the, and as I said earlier, the, um, they were used to a viewing lot, which we uh, weren't able to take in directly. So we sent it to Filmlight and they sent us back a conversion that worked with the base light. So uh, we were able to start from the point that they were used to looking at. Um, throughout their process. So there wasn't, we weren't back to the milky files that uh, 
actually existed. It was uh, everything was rendered to linear 16-bit EXRs, um, and once you converted the linear, so the logarithmic back in when you brought it back in um, and applied the lush, it then brought it back to what they were they'd been used to looking at the last four years. So there was no sort of scariness there. Um, they they were the clients were comfortable. Um, and there were there were three directors on the show um, that sort of all looked at different aspects. So there was uh, Rob, Jose, and Mark. Um, and Mark was a guy from America who had had an experience of working on things like Turbo and and other animated films. So he understood um, the grading process. He sort of took charge with the other two. Um, Looking after either story or audio or um, the other aspects of the animation, which I, I'll be honest with you, I don't completely know all of them. Mm. Uh, but they, uh, the EXR that they provided have in, embedded Alpha's um, everything. Wow. Uh, I must have had 40 or 50 channels per EXR. Really? Uh, nice. Um, so I like I had eyes, I had eyeballs, I had eyelids, I had hair, I had everything. So you didn't uh, need any mats or anything? They were all, all embedded in there, so they weren't separate. They were all embedded, uh, and if they were missing, I could phone them, and they'd resupply with the mats that I requested um, pretty much within uh, 12 hours, uh, because they had render farms all over the world. So there was a team in Malaysia, there was a team in China, there was a team in... I get asked this a lot, Dave. How much do you actually change? Because people say to me, well, you know, it's animation, so the character's shirt should be that, and it's that colour, and it should be the same all the way through. Um, well, yeah, we, we kind of changed everything from the point of view that we applied a look to the show. Right. Um, and that look then changed the elements within the shots. Uh, yes. So to bring them all back to where they should be, um we had to use the mats so we were effectively grading back to where it was on yeah. the characters yes. whereas the surrounding world was all uh changed so it's it's kind of a yeah it's two steps forward one step back in the in in a kind of a, a bizarre way but i suppose you were treating it more like maybe a live action where you go well okay we can grade it this way or we could grade it that way and sort of ignoring the fact that it all been set or the palettes had all been set for four years or whatever, which was, uh, you know, that's an adventurous way to play it because obviously it's making more work for yourself, obviously. It is, but at the same time, it wasn't because a lot, um, the mats were all on the same channels for like there was uh, uniformity across the EXRs. So if in a particular scene, if we changed uh, something where the characters, like if we have a warmth in the characters, um, skin or hair color changed from say uh, a magenta to a, a sort of bluey, or went the other way to for the red. Um, we were able to we'd have to bring that back to what the the, the brand color was yeah. in, in a sense, um, but it wouldn't affect us in the in the same way that um, if you did something that was quite neutral. You didn't have to do as much. Um, 
but it, but with the animation you do have to do an awful lot like you have to bring out the eyes a bit more so that people can see the eyes even yeah. teeth lips uh hooves um we used a little bit of glow on things like unicorn peeps and um there's an awful lot more work than you think uh like i when i first saw it i, I sort of went does this really need a grade um yeah uh, and uh and the guys were like yeah well and mark the uh club director from the states who had experience of uh, animation grading before um really drove like no it's treated like uh alive treated like live action but we will have to bring back certain things um now saying that it is very poppy and very sort of bright garish colors um because of the nature of the story and everything yeah. else um but it was it was a, it was a great project to work on it was something that uh, made me appreciate a lot more uh, the world of animation uh, from a grading point of view. Um, there was, uh, there's a guy I listened to uh, talk, I think his name is Jeff Ohm. Uh, he's, he does work with um, DreamWorks or Pixar, one of those uh, big American animation houses, um, and he's talking about uh, grading animation. Yeah. And, I like uh, Jeff. Yeah, and uh, it was really interesting uh, just to sort of like hear what he was saying. And, and I didn't get a lot of it until I actually did the job. Once I did the job, it was like, okay, now I understand. Animation stuff is really interesting because, you know, a lot of people say that to me, oh, well, you know, what do you have to do? It should all be done. Did yeah. you find a different artist would create different yeah. things or was that you did? No, it was, it was more the renders. Um, some of the stuff was rendered at a higher resolution so you're getting more detail and the right. color would it, it'd be like grading 10-bit files versus 16-bit files it was that sort of a uh you get there was just a little bit more light in the trauma um on yeah. the higher end renders um and that purely came down to cost um i think they um they had a the render the renders were taking so long and so it's prioritized like a wide shot where the characters are all tiny. They wouldn't render as high a resolution as they would. Okay. Close-ups and stuff like that. So, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. When we, we made a DCP in the end of it, and we went to the, one of the cinemas, and the entire company showed up to see it, um, like from the, the MD to the newest runner. Great. Uh, everybody turned up, and they were all sitting there. And it was like, it was like being in a room full of kids just watching this on the big, on a huge screen, and just and, and every one of them provided this. So I, and it, was, it was a really brilliant, great brilliant. How many days were you coloring it, Dave? Uh, ten days. Ten days. Ten okay. Days. So not, not uh, crazy. No, generally, uh, generally for live action or for animation, you would take ten days for a grade. Um, the, the odd film, you take a little longer. Uh, I did a Russian film years ago, Leviathan, which um, I still get work off the back of, bizarrely. Um, uh, with uh, Mikhail, the DP, I've done a good few jobs with him now. Um, and uh, we had three weeks on that. Um, and 
by saying that was less than 500 cuts in the entire movie, but we graded it three different ways. Um, and uh, sort of went with the one that suited the, the film and the story the best. Um, yeah. But generally you get two weeks. Yeah, I'd say the same. 10 days, I always say 10 days, and any other colorers listening, you should say 10 days. At least start with 10 days. Gives you time to play a little bit and walk away. Dave, it's been great, but I have to finish with how okay. I finish with everybody. Is uh, Do you have a, like a nightmare session? And do you have a session or a film or a commercial or something you're sort of most proud of? And you go, I really love that for one particular reason. Yeah, I've had a few nightmare sessions. Um, not going to mention names, but... Uh, <laughs> um, go on, come on. I have had a session where a producer had to stay in the room and stay between me and the director because he thought I was going to punch him. Um, <laughs> and I had a very inexperienced guy turn up once with a, a still on his laptop that he'd done on Da Vinci and kept saying, mine's better, mine's better. Um, and I, I did have to I did have to say, look, you need to work with someone else because this is not going to end well. Um, uh, but uh, in terms of jobs I'm proud of, uh, there's, a, there's a couple. There's, um, there's a documentary I did a few years ago, uh, which was very low budget and very parochial to Ireland. Uh, it was about a farmer um, who wouldn't sell his land to Intel to build a new factory. And uh, it was shot on a, one of the tiny Blackmagic 4K cameras with a 16 yeah. mil lens. Um, and uh, the director of DP sort of let me do, uh, let me grade it like a colorized film. So something that was uh, that was shot a hundred years ago that's been colorized and we graded it that way. And wow. It worked really well. Wow. Um, and it was, uh, in fact, I'll send you a, a yeah. link to it. Oh, it'd be great. Great if you could send um, me a link, yeah. Uh, it was, uh, yeah, it was a very nice, uh, it was just one of those jobs that if you see the before and after, uh, it's night and day. Um, uh, I suppose Leviathan I'd be proud of. Um, that was a that was a big deal. Um, it's I, I love working with Mikhail. I've done yeah. numerous jobs with him now. Um, and we just get yeah, we just we're pals. Like the Yeah. So his good. Wife, his wife and kids come over from Russia. They they come over to we all have dinner together. They, Sort of my kids play with his kids and like we, we just get on. That's uh, great. I love, work, I love working on his projects. Um, I did a job recently, uh, Terminal. It was a multicolor extravaganza um, for a guy, a director called Vaughn Stein. It was Chris Ross, the DP, yeah. and um, we shot in Budapest with Margot Robbie and Mike Myers and Simon Pegg. Um, and that was a real grade, like a proper old school for grading this. Um, it, it, was, it was beautifully shot, uh, which let me grade it. Like it was a proper neon extravaganza, um, which was great fun. And, and it was a bit old school in the sense that it was lovely. It was crushed blacks, there was zinging colors. There was, it was a real, it was just one of those jobs that you sort of go, yeah, that's, <laughs> Afraid of the shit out of this, and it's great. <laughs> What's it called, Dave? Uh, Terminal. Fantastic, yeah. mate. It's just been a good mixture of old and new and tech and going down memory lane. That's yeah, been fun. 
I really want to thank you for for jumping on board and joining, and hopefully I'll get I'll get over there one day. Hey, yeah, yeah, come over and we're on the lash. Yes, no, no, it sounds good. It sounds good. I say that to everybody who I'm doing this virtual thing with. That one day I've got to read. We'll we'll do a backup, a part two, where we can go around and I can come into your shop and see you buy, and we can go and go and sample, make some real some real drinks. Oh, there we go, there we go, there we go, there it is. (laughs) (laughs) Problems of Zoom. All right, mate, thanks very much, and uh, thanks for being on the Color Tour. Stay safe. And you. Bye. Bye.